Good, you can have your Bibles and be in Genesis chapter 6 again this morning, uh, looking uh, one more time at uh, chapter 6, verses, as it were, 1 through 8, verses 6 and 7, before moving on in the text. I think it's important that we spend one more message contemplating what Genesis 6, 6 and 7 has presented us about the character of God. So we've spent time in verses 1 through 8 talking about the, this concept of the Nephilim, and I spent two weeks on it presenting uh, what, what uh, they were, what is, is co- uh, oftentimes said about them, and then the second message uh, discussing why it is that I believe there's actually a doctrinal theological problem uh, with said viewpoint as it relates to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the character of the ark as it's presented uh, and the purpose of the ark as it's presented uh, in Genesis 6 through 8. Uh, however, I, I, I came to Genesis 6, 6 and 7, and when I got here, I said there's something else here that we need to talk about, and I really wanted to spend the time to do so about the character of God. If you have been indulging me in the manner in which I have somewhat encouraged you to think through Genesis within the scope of this series, I have asked you, uh, as you've been thinking through the nature of how Genesis presents the material, um, to set aside what you already know, uh, many of you, the tremendous amount of knowledge you have as it relates to all of the the things within the Word of God, uh, unto this end, that you could gain a perspective on what perhaps God was attempting to do as he penned these first first words of Genesis, and the foundation that he was attempting to lay as it relates to mankind. Who, who are we? Why are we here? Who is God? What, what is God like? What is his intent? Uh, um, what, what, why is there this conflict? Why are the problems that we see around us here? Um, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do the innocent suffer? And these questions are questions which the, the, the scope of the word of God gives us a, a great deal of information to be able to tackle. Uh, but we do find if we allow Genesis to kind of speak for itself in a manner where we say, okay, what what if I was reading Genesis knowing nothing else about the Word of God? What would this passage be telling me about God, about man, about the problems we see and such? And I've been encouraging you to do that, and, and I hope it to at least to some degree it has been helpful to you. And if you have been doing that, then Genesis chapter 6, verses 6 and 7 would be very intriguing to a person who is reading the Word of God, thinking through it carefully, and trying to understand the character of God himself. In those verses, we read this. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. So to this point in Genesis, as I have uh, presented God, uh, I believe Genesis has told us several things about God. We have learned that he is omniscient. We have learned that he is omnipresent. We have learned that he is omnipotent. We have learned of his sense of justice. We have learned of his long suffering in the face of rebellion and injustice. We have learned of his love for humanity. We have learned of his capacity unto grace and unto mercy. And all of these things have been shown unto us throughout the course of the narratives in Genesis chapters 1 through 6. But in Genesis 6, 6 and 7, we find another first. That God having made man and God having born with man for some 1,700 years or so, perhaps at this point, 
man having gone from a state of innocence in the garden to rebellion, to repentance, to relationship, now as we step into Genesis 6, to a state of absolute and utter wickedness and violence. And in this, we find new emotions that are connected to God. We find grief. And we find repentance. And then we see change. And these are different things. We've not come across these with God before. And in a sense, considering what we know about God already, these could be confusing. We have established that God knows all because God stands outside of time. He sees the end from the beginning. So God, the God who knows all, the God who is above all, he sees a situation that is happening here on this earth. It grieves him to his heart and he repents of having made man and thus determines to destroy him from off the earth. And the question is, how is this possible? How can a God who is above all be put into a place where his plans and his intentions are so fundamentally thwarted that he must repent and change those plans? How could it be that God would go through this process of creating man and loving man and man falling to sin and then him redeeming man only to 1,700 years later determine that he must wipe man off of the face of the earth? How can we call God sovereign, all-knowing and in absolute control when we see him repent? And as we see this bigger picture of a continued presentation of God's character, uh, this perhaps becomes even more confusing. Because as the Bible continues, we'll see this a little bit later in our time together, God will place a major emphasis upon the fact that within the scope of his character, he is what we, what we found him to be at the beginning of Genesis chapter 1. He is an unchanging God. He is a God in Malachi chapter two, verse, 3 verse 6, excuse me, where he says, I am the Lord, I change not. He is a God who will say in Numbers chapter 23 verse 19 and 1 Samuel chapter 15 verse 29, I am not a man that I should Repent. So then, how can this God, who says, I will not be as a man and repent, I am the Lord, I change not, repent that he made man and change his course of action to destroy man whom he has created from off the face of the earth? Well, we start with the foundation. When we study the word of God, we always allow what is clear to interpret what is unclear. We always allow those foundational truths to be that which informs the higher truths. And it is only if those higher truths, it is impossible to reconcile those higher truths with what we understand of a foundational truth, that then we allow ourselves to step into that foundational truth and reassess its, its foundations, right? Reassess the foundations, reassess that clarity, and so we believe from the word of God that, that, that God does not lie. And we believe what the word of God says, that it is inspired. And in that it is inspired, we would believe there not to be a contradiction here. So then the first thing that we do is we say, can these things be reconciled? And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to wrestle with these ideas that we find presented here in Genesis chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, as it relates to God's dealings with man. 
And then, of course, we'll move into a very new thematic paradigms in Genesis chapter 6, and that'll begin next time we're together. Let's consider this idea. We'll draw out from this text what we know about the circumstances at hand and then use them to formulate some careful considerations. So I'm going to just walk you through three points today, and uh, we'll, we'll walk through them systematically. I'll give them to you right up front, and we'll think through them together. So the first idea that we are going to consider today is that a God that is outside of time can still bind himself to time. A God that is outside of time can still bind himself to time. So I've taken great care uh, very early on in the Genesis series to recognize that when God created the universe, time was a part of that creative process. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. In the beginning, that is the statement of time, God created the heaven, that is the statement of space. Sorry for the... Uh, e being on the second line there. And then, uh, and the earth, that is matter. So those three things that we find within the, the, the realm of science that the entire created universe is made up of, time, space, and matter, are accounted for in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And as we think through this, and of course, if we want to get a little bit more technical, and we say, well, nowadays we're saying time, space, matter, and energy, conservation of energy, uh, laws of thermodynamics, all that good stuff, uh, that works just fine in there too, because in the beginning, God created Right, And so we see the infusion of energy uh, in relation to time, space, and matter. So that doesn't need to throw us off as it relates to that concept either. But notice that all of these things that happened at the beginning when God created these things, God was already there. And this is where we recognize that God is outside of time. That time was a part of the creative process. And in that time is a part of the creative process. That means God is outside of Time, because God is outside of his creation. So whereas we see time as something that is very linear and one way, God is, as Jesus says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. God is not naturally bound by time. He stands above time, which to the creation itself, again, is one way and is linear, but to God... The beginning and the end are, are the same. He is over all of them. He is as much at the beginning as he is at the end at any given point in time because God stands above time. He is not bound by time in the way we are bound by time. But this is not the only characteristic that we see about God in regard to time. Now we're going to add a layer on top of that. Because if we, if we were just going to say, well, we have this sovereign, omnip, uh, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent God, because he is outside of his creation, well, that, that implies somewhat of a distant God, a detached God. But that doesn't necessarily make sense with what we've seen of God. God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. God has interacted with his people. God's people have called upon his name. Enoch walked with God, right? And so we see these very personal relational ideas, and then we need to reconcile. How is it that this God who is outside of his creation is also personal and relational within his creation? How can a God that is unbound by time interact with that which is bound by time? And we see a little bit of that in the process of what God is doing here in Genesis chapter 6. God, by design, is not bound by time inherently, as you and I and the rest of creation are inherently and inextricably bound by time. This does not mean that God is not able to bind himself to time. 
when he would choose to do so, to operate within time. So that if God wants to, he can certainly live within those limitations of time. Now, one of the things that we find in Genesis 6 and 7 is a highlighting of the reality that God, that though we are made in the image of God, and there are many ways in which we relate ourselves to our understanding of the moral universe by relating ourselves to a God in whose image we are made, simultaneously we begin to see very clearly that we are not the same as God. God is very different than we are. See, because if we were going to operate the way we think we ought to operate, it would not, Genesis would not go the way Genesis goes, right? And so we are going to be seeing this divergence. We have seen it. We will continue to see it, that God is not like man. That God is God. Man is man. His ways are not our ways. His ways, his thoughts are not our thoughts. As I quoted this morning when I was praying, Isaiah 55. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are his ways higher than our ways and his thoughts than our thoughts. But in this case, this is something that's not too hard for us to understand. The creator binding himself to some degree or another to his creation. I mean, we do this all the time, don't we? We create something. We create something that has natural limitations and then we bind ourselves to those limitations. We build a house. That house is naturally limit, has naturally limited where we live, and then we bind ourselves to live in the same place because that's where we created this dwelling place. We limit where we go based upon the capacities of the transportation that we have. I think the biggest, the, the, the easiest way to look at this is those digital devices that many of us have in our pockets now. Mankind has created a device that now rules over him, that now dictates time, dictates schedules, dictates feelings, that that we have created this network, these social networks, and, and then the means by which to tap into these social networks that literally dictate people's entire existence. How they feel on in any given moment is completely controlled by what they read on that screen. The creation is bound by his, uh, the, the creator, excuse me, is bound by his creation. So it is not hard for us to understand the concept that a creator could be bound by something that he creates. Now, that being said, though the creator can be bound, one of the things that our society still hasn't figured out is all you have to do to not be bound by that digital creation is to shut it off. And then it has no power over you anymore, right? All you have to do is hit the off button and it goes away. So technically speaking, I am only as bound to that piece of glass and metal as I allow myself to be. And there are reasons why I might as a creator, of course, I didn't create the phone, but where humans might as creators desire to bind ourselves to some measure of our own creation, but only within the, the scope to which it is advantageous to ourselves or to others, right? And we can think of this sort of an idea as it relates to God as well. We have seen glimmers of the fact that God is willing to bind himself in certain ways to the limitations of his creation. When God promised that the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent, he was promising that he would bring someone in the process of time 
through the material realm that he created that would undo a spiritual problem that was done in Adam, right? So we have already seen that God has made some promises to step into the material realm, which is bound by time, in order to bring about the solution to what we might call a timeless problem. Certainly, God could have just sent a redeemer to come to earth and to have dealt with sin. He could have dealt with sin in another way that was completely unbound by the nature of creation. I often tell people if I were God, and this is one of the the, the great testimonies of God's love for us, because if I were God and Adam had done what Adam would have done, I would have said, okay, back to the drawing board. I would have crumpled him up, thrown him in the trash, and we'd have started all over again. But God did not do that because he loves us. And because he loves us, he says, I'm going to bind myself to the things in this world that have begun in order that I might bring about a solution in a manner that is consistent with the world that I have created. And so Seth was not that seed, and Enoch was not that seed, and Noah was not that seed, but they were all in the line of that seed. And in the fullness of time, God brought forth his son, born of a virgin, born under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. He came within the process of the rules that he had created to do what needed to be done to undo the sin that had been brought into the world. So God binds his plan to humanity's timetable. And that particularly because it is for humanity that God would send that seed. It makes sense then that that seed would be bound into that time. And if we are able to get a hold of that concept, it will help us, not just in regard to Messiah, not just in regard to Noah's flood, but in regard really to the whole of the Bible. That as we look at history, it is a progression. God is in absolute control. We are moving from point A to point B, and God has given us those checkpoints. He has told us what those things are. We're going from the creation of all things to the consummation of all things. And he has most certainly ordained these things to be so, but he is allowing the times and the seasons to play out according to his wisdom and according to his plan in order that he will bring about his perfect will in maximum faithfulness to his character. Binding himself to time allows God to work out his plan with maximum justice, maximum mercy, maximum love, maximum long-suffering, all of the things that his righteous character demands, he will work out in the process of time, though he himself is above time. Okay, pastor, fair enough. But what does this have to do with anything? Well, I'm glad you've asked. The thing we are working toward is we are attempting to reconcile the fact that God knows all, that God is sovereign over all. He is absolutely unchanging with the fact that circumstances can grieve him to his heart and that he can repent. And the initial important thing to understand is that God is able, should he choose himself, to bind himself to time. And this important thing is is there, and then by binding himself to time, he's binding himself to the things that affect circumstances in time, such as the choices of men, and the choices of governments, and the development of cultures and of societies, even natural circumstances, the, 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 the natural weather and these sorts of things, while still being above time, weaving all of these circumstances together with the choices that are in time to bring about his perfect 
will. And I've uh, heard this illustration used before of God's will being sort of like an ocean liner going from one port to another. Uh, I originally learned this analogy through A.W. Tozer. Uh, I don't know if he stole it from someone else. Uh, But the idea here is that the direction of that ocean liner is set. It is going from port to port. It has pointed itself in that direction and, and, and it is going from A to B. The ocean liner has a definitive destination, which it will reach. But while it's traveling from point A to point B, there are a lot of things happening on the boat itself. People are making decisions. Those things are affecting them. It's affecting others. Those decisions will affect the disposition of various people by the time they arrive at that destination. But none of those things that the people are doing on the boat are actually threatening the direction of the boat itself. They're making their individual decisions, but the boat is chugging along. Now, the boat is on this course to its destination, and it will get there, regardless of what happens on the boat. And of course, in the divine sense, Satan is busy attempting to sink the boat, right? That's, that's Satan's job. Satan wants to sink the boat so that he can claim divine authority for himself. God fails. I win. I am God. He exalts himself over God. That's what Satan wants to do. And while Satan is making this particular push to sink the boat, God is stepping in, sometimes more directly into history, such as with Noah's flood, uh, to make sure that the boat stays afloat while everyone else is making their decisions. And some people really think that their decisions are affecting the whole course of the boat, and other people don't, don't subscribe to such a delusion. But one way or another, people are doing all sorts of things on the boat. But the boat is going from A to B. So when God promised Messiah in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when he promised to Eve that the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent, God was looking ahead and he was saying, there is a port of call, that boat is going to that place, and it's going to get there. And we don't know exactly how, and we don't know exactly when, because the boat has to travel through those waters. And there's going to be a lot of people that are going to make a lot of decisions between here and there, but that boat is getting there. That is God's promise. He saw it, he knew it, and he promised to Eve that that day would come. So, God is outside of time, yet he can still bind himself to time. Second, a transcendent God can still allow conditions which grieve him. As a part of this way of thinking, the paradigm of God's working in history, we find that since God is binding himself to various aspects of his creation, in this case we've talked about time, we find as well that God binds himself to other elements of the material world, namely to the choices of his creation. We have talked quite a bit. We talked quite a bit uh, earlier on in Genesis about the fact that the reason why God put that tree in the Garden of Eden is because God did not just want us to be automatons who obeyed him without will or without thought. He wanted us to be, he wanted us to have a relationship. He gave us a choice because he wanted us to have a loving relationship. And love demands a choice. There is no love where there is no choice. The sin of Adam no doubt grieved God. The rejection of Cain no doubt grieved God. The corruption of mankind over the span of these 1,700 years, the Bible says explicitly here, grieved God at his heart. It, as it were, cut him deep that this creation which he had ordained into a loving relationship with himself had so deeply rejected him. And in this we are reminded of something very important. 
that just because a person has, even God in this case, the authority or control over something does not mean that he's immune from pain or sorrow. God is just, but he's also loving. And in that he loves his creation, in that he wants a relationship with his creation, well, a part of that kind of relationship is vulnerability. And thus grief. Sometimes those in authority will watch as those under them make bad decisions. Not necessarily because the authority did anything wrong, but because people make choices. And sure, we could just rule with an iron fist and strip from people the opportunity to make bad choices. That's a strategy. Or we could hide ourselves. We could cut ourselves off from relationships, disengage from the world to avoid being hurt. That's another strategy. We see a lot of people do both of those. But in doing so, we deprive ourselves, not even of that which makes us human, but of that which connects us to the divine. God sought out a relationship with us, knowing what that would mean, knowing that with a relationship comes will, and knowing that with will comes vulnerability and grief. And yet he sought it anyway. And that tells us a lot about God. So we find one of the many such times in the Bible where God in his love and according to his broader plan will watch as those whom he loves rejects his way and they submit themselves to the will of their own deceitful hearts. And to this day, that trend continues. Where God in his love sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for the sins of men. And while many have not heard, even among those who have heard there is only yet a small portion of them that will yield to the truths of the gospel and accept that love that God has reached out to give. And then among those who have accepted that love, the call is to walk in darkness, to abide in Christ, to walk in the spirit. And yet only a subset of those who have chosen to follow Christ into salvation will actually yield themselves to abide in the way they ought to abide a subset of a subset. And yet God endures that grief, that grief that we see when Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem and said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who slay the prophets, how oft would I have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks, but ye would not. And yet though they would not, Jesus said that on his way to the cross to pay for those sins, those very rebellions over which he himself was weeping. And these things grieve the heart of God. A God who knows what is best for us, who has designed us and the world with that in mind. A God who, though he removed Adam and Eve from the garden, yet he clothed them. A God who, though Cain was banished to the land of Nod for killing his brother Abel, yet he placed a mark upon him so that no man would come and kill him. A God who has expressed grace and mercy multiple times, and yet in, in so many of these cases he finds that grace and mercy rebuffed, and yet he extends it nonetheless. And once again, we are reminded that God is very different from man. So that when the scriptures call us, be ye holy for I am holy, God is compelling us to follow what is not just his character, but what has been his example. 
into something different than what the natural inclinations of my heart would compel me unto. And though we are not at the end of our sermon, this does become a point of true application this morning. That we remember the nature of God in this regard and what he calls us unto. A God who, uh, though his way is open to all, to each of us, yet allows us the liberty to choose it for ourselves, but did not withhold from us the love, extending the love simply because of the possibility of rejection. God wants what he has always wanted. He wants a relationship with us. And love is a choice. And so this provides for us another reminder for our own lives. To love something, to love someone, is to make oneself vulnerable. Those who are closest to you, those whom you have chosen to love, are, by definition, those who are able to hurt you the most. God calls upon us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and might. And though that's the one that we perhaps struggle with in one sense, it is actually the one that ought to be the easiest because we know God will never take advantage of that vulnerability. God will never fail us when we extend our love to him. To whatever extent you pour your love out to God, God will never, ever fail in that love. It will never be unrequited. It will never be unrewarded. But God also calls us to love our neighbor as ourself, doesn't he? God also calls us to love our enemies. God also calls us to love the brethren, the follower of Jesus Christ, with this superior love, with that heightened love. And because we're all human, the call of love comes with this true risk. It is not a risk for me to love God because God will not fail. It is a risk for me to love others because others will fail. Because we're all human. When I give myself to love another, I am making myself vulnerable to them. And so I open myself up to the grief and the sorrow that can come when one can use the occasion of my love to serve themselves or to take advantage of me. But what we learn from the heart of God is that he did not allow the risk of grief to hinder his determination to love. Yes, it was his love for humanity that inspired his grief over their rebellion. But the same love, which in that day redounded to his grief, when carried forward into time, will bring times and seasons to the inevitable destination that God had ordained. It will redound to more pleasure and more delight than any of the grief of that moment. It's easy to become cynical, Christian, in our days. It's easy to say that love and investment are not worth it because we have been hurt. It's easy to say that investment in others isn't worth it because they simply take advantage of you and they leave you to clean up the mess. It's easy to say. It's very easy to get cynical. And if all we had was this life, it would be absolutely true, right? If all I had was this life far better in this life, if this is all I had to circle the wagons, to withhold my love, to withhold my investment, because with it comes far more chance of pain than otherwise. Far better to simply enfold into myself 
Far better to put the walls up really high, to let the people only into the outer chamber of my heart so that I can't be hurt. But in doing so, Christian, not only do you miss out on, you miss out on the, the, the potential danger of, of that grief of vulnerability, but you also miss out on the heights of the joy of what God has desired, designed us to live in and called us to live in. But we also miss out on the rewards of the life that is to come. For those who have followed their Savior into what he did on the cross for us. The Bible presents this motivation in loving others, even perhaps at your own detriment at times, in investing in others, even at the risk of loss. You bear the privilege of being more like your Savior. The Savior who did the same thing for you. Who went to the cross for those who would spend their last breath, their dying day, shaking their fist at him. Whose blood was spilt. And as his blood was being spilt, he looked down at those who had put him on that cross and he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And in spite of all of the other reasons why we might be motivated to or not to love, when we do as Christ has done, we become more like our Savior. And when we are more like our Savior, we can ask for nothing more. So we follow the one who has never and will never never abuse our love into love. We follow the one who has never and will never wrong our trust into that trust. And in this life we find joy. And then we find when we cross that divide, everlasting life on the other end. So we read in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. Let love be without dissimulation. That's hypocrisy. Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another, not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer, distributing to the necessity of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink, for in doing so thou shalt keep heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. So Peter would say in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12, Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. 
Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the, Lord, the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. These principles are not the principles of those who will find in this life um, the most protection against those people that would, would, would seek to take advantage. It is not the attitude of those in this life who uh, will, will find themselves um, protected from the most emotional sorrow, from the most grief. Living this way will bring about circumstances that grieve us at our hearts as we invest in people only to watch them go in, in a different way. These things will happen. They do happen. But it is enough that we are like our Lord. And even if it weren't enough that we would be like our Lord, we have this promise, that the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and that his ears are open to their cries. And so we are compelled when we see in Genesis chapter 6 this idea that mankind, the mankind that God created, knowing the, the end from the beginning, grieved him to his heart, and yet he chose nonetheless to create them, to show mercy upon them. Noah, of course, we know from verse 8, will find grace in the eyes of the Lord. We see these things, we recognize these things, and we say, God is not like a man. And far from me saying, wow, God is really not like me. Wow, I, I, I'm going to do things very differently. We say instead, God is not like me. How can I be more like him? I take you to only one more passage as it relates to this point, then we'll come to the third. A blessed and glorious day. The end of the boat journey. We read this in Revelation chapter 21. The Bible does not tell us that love and investment and vulnerability will always bring about in this life, uh, will always work out in this life. No matter how much I extend love to certain people, I still watch as they make terrible decisions. No matter how much I keep those bridges and I do not burn those bridges and my arms are wide open, I still watch people walk into destruction. No matter how much I care, it is not enough for me to care. With some people it is. With others, it's simply not enough. They're going to do what they're going to do. But then we come to Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, and the Bible says, God shall wipe all away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And there's a boat, and when it gets to the end of the journey, this is what's at that end. There's a time where the grief that might fill our hearts when we extend love and it is not requited, when we extend love and it's seen as a vulnerability to be exploited, when we, uh, when we, when we, we show that compassion, when we show that earnestness, when we show that generosity, that we may be as our Lord and we receive in return some measure of grief, some measure of pain, some measure of sorrow, some measure of confusion, when we have invested only to see that investment turn because they have a free will as well and all of that is there, but there's coming a day where that sorrow will be gone. That's the end of that journey. We know that it is there. That is our blessed hope and we hope for that but in the meantime it is enough Christian that we are as our Lord. So our transcendent God 
will allow conditions that grieve him. What a fascinating thing. He doesn't have to. He is over all. He is above all. He is in control of all. But he does for the joy that is set before him. Endure the pain, despise the shame. And if our transcendent God can still allow said conditions, if only it may be that his goodness and love will lead some to repentance, perhaps we can as well. And that brings us to our final thought. An unchanging God indeed can still repent. I alluded earlier to two important verses in regarding to, regard to the nature of God. The first is that verse in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. As God is speaking to the nation of Israel through Malachi, he says, For I am the Lord, I change not, therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. God appealing to the reality of his unchanging promises to show them that there is going to be, on the other end, repentance for Israel. The second, perhaps a little bit more to the point as it relates to repentance, Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, where God uh, expresses to the nation of Israel in the law, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? We find in these verses that God is unchanging and he makes no mistakes. To this end, God is not like a man where he must change his mind because his choices that he originally made were, as it were, suboptimal. But then we come to verses like Genesis 6, 6, and 7, and we are told specifically that God repented, and then we seek to reconcile these. And this is why we began by saying that God is outside of time but is willing to submit himself to time. There is a method to the madness. This is why we established the idea of time being like an ocean liner which is moving from a point A to an inevitable point B toward an end. So that when we understand that God has a direction and that it is an unchanging direction based upon his unchanging character, that when God chooses to submit as an unchanging God with unchanging character, when he chooses to submit himself to time, to free will, to the, the uniquenesses of a linear choice-based economy. Because humans change their thoughts, intents, and directions in life, God is fully free within time to alter his individual decisions to align with the decisions of men as it relates to his unchanging design and unchanging character. In other words, God changes in relation to man's choices so that he is continually consistent with his character as man disposes himself differently to God at different points in time. I make choices, and because I am fallible and because my brain is only about this big and it doesn't work very well, those choices are often contradictory to themselves and and over time, and it's conditioned upon my feelings, and it's conditioned upon circumstances, and I'm tired one day and I make bad choices, and then I get a plate of cookies and I start making good choices because now I feel better, and this is just how life works for fickle human beings. And God says, I am unchanging, and I resist the proud, and I give grace to the humble. So if I'm being proud one moment, God is resisting me, then when I change my direction, God changes his actions toward me in consistency with his unchanging character. So God hasn't changed. I have altered my disposition toward him, which has altered his actions toward me. And this is why God can declare judgment, say, upon Nineveh. 
And Jonah can walk into Nineveh reluctantly because he understood God's character. And he can say, in 40 days, this place is going to be destroyed. And then Nineveh can repent so much so that they even put ashes on their animals. And God says, tell Nineveh they will no longer be destroyed. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. God gave a pronouncement. What changed? Well, we know what changed. Jonah came to Nineveh. They were walking in rebellion against God. They qualified themselves for judgment. In time, and under God's unchanging character, my apologies for the getting the letters off on that again. In time, and in and in under God's unchanging character, in His unrepentant declarations of justice, the direction that Nineveh was heading was a direction of judgment. In 40 days, you will be judged because you are on the path to judgment. Nineveh then changed. They repented. And God, who is outside of time, binding himself to time, said, yes, in that moment in time, you were on the path to judgment. Then you repented. And you have now aligned yourself in my unchanging character with my mercy, not my judgment. God did not change. His character remained constant. Nineveh changed. And so God altered his actions with respect to Nineveh's submission, repentance. They qualified themselves upon repentance for grace and mercy, which God naturally desires to give to those who humble themselves. So God, as it were, changed his pronouncement in consistency with his unchanging character. And the same can be said in Genesis chapter 6. The race of Adam had been given grace through humility and submission. The line of Cain had their portion in this life, but the line of Seth and the whole uh, of humanity along that line recognized and called upon the name of the Lord, recognized God's authority. But then the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they began to have children together and there was a compromising of obedience through the, the sons of God yielding to their wives in this compromised fashion. That's what we saw at the beginning of Genesis 6, right? The sons of God coming into the daughters of men. And we find that through this, there is a compromise that is working through the line of the sons of God. So that fewer and fewer are choosing to submit themselves to God. Fewer and fewer are calling upon the name of the Lord. And as fewer and fewer are in this state of obedience, there comes a point where that mercy tips over into judgment. When the unchanging, long-suffering mercy of God could no longer sustain the rebellion of mankind, God shifts his dealings in time with mankind to be consistent with the demands of his unchanging, holy character of justice and judgment. So God repented of having made man, not in that he made a mistake, but rather that he had preserved man in mercy and grace for generations. And now that blessed preservation, his mercy is gone and it's tipping into judgment. Now, that's not what Numbers 23 is presenting. 
What Numbers 23 is presenting is that God is not as a man who makes mistakes, who is limited in his knowledge and understanding and so must walk back his choices. These are two different ideas contextually as it relates to the context of repentance. And they can coexist perfectly without contradiction. God is not as a man. Genesis 6 has made that very clear. He is very different from man. God has not made a mistake. But when man has disposed himself in such a way that he is now, that there is nothing but violence continually upon the earth, God's mercy must give way to his judgment because he is unchanging. Because the consistency of his character demands this. And God will act in consistency with his character. He always will. We can know that. He always will act in consistency with his character. And this is encouraging. It's not encouraging that we're about to see the destruction of the known world in a cataclysmic flood. But what is encouraging is that God has showed us himself and what he expects. And he, has even sh- he will show us, as we, can, as we get to Noah, how to avoid that judgment. Because this is the God that we serve. And he's the same God today as he was in Noah's day. And the same thing that Noah appealed to, to, to be able to, 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 to be in the boat rather than in the water, is the very thing that we can appeal to. And this is that consistency of character. Thank God God is not like a man. Thank God he is unchanging. Thank God he does not repent as a man must repent. But thank God that he is also a God who communes with man, that is willing even to allow circumstances that will grieve him at his heart if it might be that he could extend love to them. And as we close out our thoughts on the beginning of Genesis 6, we are called to reconcile these things in our own selves. What is your relationship to the mercy and judgment of God? As we think through this time where man's wickedness was great, where it was not that God's character changed, but that God's disposition toward an individual had to change, uh, toward the world really, toward humanity had to change because of humanity's decisions. Where are your decisions taking you? Are they taking you toward mercy or are they taking you towards judgment? Are they taking you toward the part of God's character whereby uh, the, the God uh, gives grace to the humble? Or are you, uh, are you walking toward the part of his character whereby he resists the proud, right? What part of God's character, unchanging, are you invoking with your thoughts, with your actions, with your intentions, with your decisions, The glory of our God is that he is willing to step into time and to interact with we who are bound to the demands of the material. Are you walking in rebellion? It's never too late to repent. And when you do, you realign your heart with God's heart and you can step into the part of his unchanging character that is defined by mercy and grace. Are you walking in humility today? Receiving that grace. Christian, be warned, it's never too late to falter. Don't get proud. Don't get complacent. While we who are in Christ are safe, kept in his grace, those even who are believers who step into rebellion will face the unchanging and unrepentant design of God and character of God and judgment for sin. God deals with sin. God resists 
the proud. It doesn't matter if I've been humble for 10 years. If I start being proud, I will face God's resistance. He is unchanging. I cannot gain enough currency in the, in the bank of God's favor that I can start to do wrong and just expect that, well, I've done enough for God. He's going to just give me one back. It doesn't work that way. God's character is unchanging. To this end, we are drawn to understand God's character, what God has declared, and what he has declared in the heavens will be so. But God is not beyond changing his disposition toward us as we change our disposition toward him in order to align our current choices with his eternal determinations. And may this work in us a resolve that we, as we identify God's character, as we know who it is that we serve, that we seek above all, if you want his favor, if you want the eyes of the Lord to be upon the righteous and his ears to be open to your cries, you know how. God has not made it a mystery. And, God, and, and, and he, he is not fickle, right? Humans are so fickle. As a general rule, my children know what will please me. But then there's a day where I'm tired or I'm hungry, and it's not, it doesn't work because dad is fickle. Dad doesn't like to be fickle. Dad doesn't want to be fickle. Dad's working on that. We all do, but I'm human. But God's not like that. We know what pleases God, and we know what doesn't. He's made it so clear in his word. He's made it clear from generation to generation. And that's what we're seeing here. We're seeing a time in humanity where God was grieved to his heart. It repented in that he made man, not because God became fickle, not because he was grumpy, not because he woke up on the wrong side of the bed, not because he hasn't had cookies for a while. He's, that's not him. He is being 100% consistent to who he is. Man has chosen to walk away from God. So may God help us to know his character, to align with his character, to align in obedience to his character, that we might realize all of those unchanging promises of God upon those who seek him with all of their hearts. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.